Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The path to reconciliation is one of listening, learning and growing together. A path that recognises the central place of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in our past and in our future. It is in that spirit that we acknowledge the traditional owners of the land and pay tribute to Elders past, present and future. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want a deeper understanding of the policy issues facing Australia and the world. Policy Forum Pod is produced by the Crawford School of Public Policy here at the Australian National University. I'm Sharon Bessel, and I'm here as always with my wonderful co-host, Anna Greta Hunter. This week, we continue our mini-series on reimagining social policy with a focus on the robo-debt scandal and what the revelations and recommendations of the Royal Commission mean for social policy in Australia. Last week, we spoke about the values and the principles that should underpin social policy. Today, we'll be delving into the detail of policy design and implementation. To talk through these issues, we have one of Australia's leading thinkers on social security and social policy joining us, Professor Peter Whiteford. Professor Whiteford is a good colleague here at the Crawford School, and he's also a member of the Interim Economic Inclusion Advisory Committee, established by the Australian Federal Government late last year. Peter was previously Principal Administrator in the Directorate of Employment, Labor and Social Affairs for the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development, or the OECD. Peter has worked on pension and welfare policies, child poverty, family assistance policies and welfare reform. And you can read his commentary in the conversation, including recent pieces on robo-debt and on the very different outcomes of increases to retirement age in Australia and France. Peter, it is so great to have you with us today. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me. It's uh, great to, to be here. So, Peter, it's been a big week um, with Robo-Debt Royal Commission findings coming down, the report being released. And we do want to talk about um, the findings of that Royal Commission um, and what this very dark period of Australia's history means for the future of social policy and our thinking about social security. But before we get to that, I wonder if we can talk just a little bit about some of the principles that can or should underpin social security and government benefits. Can you explain to us what social security is meant to achieve and how the recipients of government benefits can be positioned within social security policies across different countries and across time in Australia? Because that positioning of recipients really matters, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean... um... As many people will be aware, the, um, the Australian social security system actually differs in many of its fundamental principles from those in most other countries, except New Zealand and um, to some extent the United Kingdom and Ireland. And that is 
we don't have it. We don't have a social insurance system, so we don't have a contributory system. We have a system that um, uh, paid for out of general government revenue, mainly in Australia's case, mostly income tax and GST, um, and uh, it's income tested. So, in other countries, you know the benefits you receive are related to your contributions, and you and the employer make contributions. And normally, um, to varying degrees, in those European countries in North America and uh, Northeast Asia, the um, the amount of benefit you receive is sort of a percentage of your past earnings. So, um, within limits, the more the higher your past earnings, the higher the benefits you receive. Now, Australia is is in a sense the exact opposite of that. It's um, uh, we income test, so uh, but we income test on your current resources, your current income and assets. Um, so the more uh, income you have, the lower the benefits you receive. Um, but it covers most of the same um, contingencies of life as um, as other countries do. So, um, you know, in most places, um, age pensions are the most important or retirement pensions are the most important area of spending and then disability payments, unemployment payments and then family payments uh, and a range of other things payments for people like carers. So so we have the same categories, but we organize it on different principles. Now that's quite that is actually, I think, very significant in thinking about robo debt. Because um, in contrast with many other countries, we um, uh, we income test on your current resources. Um, whereas as I said in other places they do the Almost the reverse of that. They they um, they give you amounts of money based on your previous contributions. Now, so income testing does a couple of things. Um, does quite a lot of things actually. Um, it 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 looks um, what economists looks like what economists call target efficient. So you minimise the amount of for, the, for minimising the amount of money you uh, direct more money to the poor. So um, in Australia, if you look at the overall system, um, something like um, the poorest 20% of the population in Australia get um, more than 12 times as much in actual dollars than the richest 20% of the population. That's because the richest 20% of the population don't get very much at all. Um, so, so we have this really income-tested, targeted system. Now, because it's based on people's current income, what that also means is that um, it raises this question about um, are you measuring income correctly are you um, and are you targeting the poor? So it raises this issue of the accuracy of payments. Um, I mean, other systems have different sorts of issues uh, about accuracy of payments, but they, they don't adjust the benefits based on precisely how much money you're getting uh, this month or this fortnight or this year, whereas in Australia we do. So um, so the targeting creates the question of um, are we overpaying people or are we underpaying people? Um, some of those questions come out in other systems, but not in precisely the same way. But it also, uh, because it's not based on contributions, um, it also creates probably different attitudes to social security. Uh, which are that um, the people who are receiving it are um, are low income, and um, many of the attitudes that have existed perhaps for centuries about 
um, attitudes towards uh, people in poverty about, you know, um, is it due to choices they made? Um, uh, are they being lazy? Are they not planning for the future? So, so, so all of those value judgments that are part of many people's views about poverty get also uh, imported into views about the Australian social security system. Um, and so, as I said, it, our income tested system being very different from most other places raises these two issues in a much more salient way than it does in many other countries. So the, the issue of are we being accurate in um, and are people being accurate in telling us what they, what they, they earn and also, um, uh, you know, is it a dichotomy between them and us? Mm-hmm. And Peter, in the expert evidence that you gave to the Royal Commission and, and in the writing that you've done around robo-debt um, and the social security system more broadly in Australia, you've noted that the very high levels of part-time and casual work in Australia um, are important when we think about the way our system operates, but particularly when we think about um, what happened through the robo-debt scheme. Can you talk us through why those high levels of part-time and casual work were so significant in the context of robo-debt? Well, there's some, for most of the past, um, getting on towards 45 years, Australian governments have tried to encourage um, people on working age payments in particular to um, to work part time in order to um, uh, both supplement their benefits which um, so it's sort of improving the adequacy of payments but also on the theory that um, uh, if people work part time they sort of um, get into the habit of work so to speak and then graduate out of the system um, so it's a, it's a, the idea is that um, that part time work will lead you ultimately to getting more work opportunities. It, it'll keep you attached to the labour force. It'll, you know, either uh, keep up or develop skills that are relevant to the labour force. And so, therefore, you're more likely to uh, ultimately get a full-time job and get outside of the system. So, um, I mean, up until uh, 1980, um, uh, so this was the Fraser government that started these changes, Um Unemployment payments and and sickness benefit and other working age payments had um, a 100% withdrawal rate. Um, So for every uh, dollar you earned, you lost a dollar off benefits. And so that was real targeting to to low-income groups. Now, um, so in 1980, uh, the government then introduced a what seems like a very small um, uh, Income free area, so you could earn up to ten dollars a fortnight and, and not have your payment reduced, so you could have a little bit more money. Uh, now that's been increased uh, substantially over time to um, about one hundred and fifty dollars a fortnight, um, and that hundred percent withdrawal rate has gone down to fifty percent and then sixty percent. Uh, and there's also been very complicated ways of, um, as part time and casual work um, became more common. Um, just to take a sidestep, I mean, if you think back to the 1970s, um, uh, well, I can anyway, I'm not sure either of you are in the position to think back much to the 1970s, um, um, you yeah, sort of, the labour market was totally different, right? So um, uh, people, the majority of young people left school at the age of 16 
uh, young men got full-time jobs. So did young women, women at the time. Uh, but then they gave up their full-time jobs when they got married and had children. Um, and um, so you had this sort of very much the, ma- the male full-time breadwinner model um, was the dominant way the labour force was constructed. Uh, and there was very little part-time work. And students, um, as I said, got um, you know, got full-time jobs after they left school. Not many people went to university or higher education. Um, so that's completely changed. And so uh, we have um, both very high levels of part-time work, particularly for uh, women with children, and also the process of entry into the labour force has completely changed for young people because yeah, now, part, uh, finishing high school and then participating in higher education has increased dramatically. So, so yeah, so the social security system has, in a sense, adjusted to those um, labour market changes. Um, there's an interesting question about whether the social security system actually reinforces those labour market changes, um, uh, which is a bit hard to untangle um but so the idea was um yeah uh we want to encourage part-time work uh we also um uh, at various stages um you know sort of um introduced income support for students uh um particularly well, but you know finishing high school and um uh and going to university or TAFE because the idea was that um if you didn't have support for those people um the incentives to go on unemployment benefit would be greater. So, yeah, people might choose to be unemployed rather and receive a benefit rather than continuing studying. So, so we expanded student income support, um, uh, particularly from the 1980s onwards. Um, so, yeah, the labour market has changed very dramatically and, and particularly for students, um, you know, various governments, um, notably the Howard government in particular, uh, sort of tried to, come up with ways to make um, uh, sort of substantial part-time work um, uh, attractive to students and also to, to the unemployed. Um, so we have various technical ways of doing that. But, um, you know, sort of – so say, for example, a student, I think, can um, uh, earn about $10,000 a year before their payment starts to be reduced. Um uh, anyway, so we so we we've been trying to encourage part time work. Um, now, what that means is that um, it varies from payment to payment. Um, um, I think lone parents have the highest level of part time work. That's mainly because they have um, the lowest rate of withdrawal of their benefits. But about um, uh, uh, twenty. 20 to 30% of people on um, student payments, on youth payments for the unemployed and for adult unemployment payments have, um, have part-time work. Now, so, so it's, a, it's not very far from universal. We're talking about 20 to 30%, although people change their status um, on a sort of a regular basis. Um, so... So 20, 30% of those people are um, are in part-time work at any point in time. Now, that's also um, uh, what you find is actually sort of the, the 
they're, they're doing reasonably substantial part-time work. They're probably um, working two to three days a week. Um, they're getting well, they're, they're getting sort of five or five hundred to six hundred. The, the 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 median for those people who've got jobs is five hundred to six hundred dollars a fortnight. Um, so it's it's quite a substantial addition to the basic payment. Uh, now, what um, what I did for the Royal Commission was look at the, that that policy development over time since nineteen eighties, um, basically to identify that um, yeah for forty years we've been trying to encourage people into part time work. Um, and we've been trying to encourage people to take up um, part-time work in holidays, part, you know, um, part-time work at weekends if you're students and that sort of thing. Um, and uh, RoboDebt completely ignored that, right? Um, the other – because, um, as I'm sure people are aware, what uh, RoboDebt involved um, is that um, – where people, and I quote, failed to engage with um, Centrelink, um, they took their annual income reported to the tax office and um, in many cases just simply divided it by 26 um, and assumed that you'd had the same earnings each fortnight for the whole year. Uh, there's a um, – the, the, the government departments, Department of Social Services now and the Employment Department um, previously in – Family and Community Services before that, have had longitudinal data sets since the early 1990s. Now, what these do is they these are um, the records of what people do and what they have to report in order to establish their entitlement to Social Security benefits. So there's a, a data set um, that's only been in effect since about 2015 that the Department of Social Services has called Domino. Um, uh, which is um, literally everything that's ever happened to anybody who's ever received a social security payment since 2001. So it's a, an incredibly complicated system, um, but it's got amazing information in it. So what um, the Department of Social Services, um, you know, with the Royal Commission, I specified you know, sort of some tables that they should produce, um, which they did. And what we found was that of the people who had earnings um, at the time RoboDebt was in operation, um, almost nobody had stable earnings. Um, so, uh, as I said, we're talking about 20 to 30% of the recipients um, of those payments. And, um, yeah, um, we're talking about uh, more than 90% of those people had earnings that were, were changed significantly uh, from fortnight to fortnight. Um, so the assumption that, um, that um, built into the averaging in RoboDebt that you had stable incomes just didn't, didn't apply. And, of course, common sense tells us, um, you know, sort of, that if you're a casual worker in Australia, um, and we're talking, I think, um, you know, sort of a, around, um, uh, yeah, twenty, around the twenty percent of the the workforce, um, a bit more, um, then you're on call. Your 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 employer can say, "Don't come in tomorrow," or, or um, you know, sort of, or your shift will be, you know this much this week, this much the other week. And also, of course, you have um, 
there's a there's um yeah it's also important which you know do you work on a saturday night because you get paid differently from what you do on a wednesday afternoon right because uh, of um because uh, of shift loadings so so um i actually um I didn't go through all of them, but I did a Google search on casual work in Australia, um, and um, it came up. Uh, you know, in ten seconds, it said there were five hundred thousand um, uh, mentions of casual work in Australia. Um, so everybody knows um, people who do casual work and how it is variable income. So, so the the analysis we did showed that. Um, this was completely against the policy directions that have been um, in operation for you know, 40 years. And most recently, um, there have been a significant change in 2012 to encourage students to um, increase their hours of work. Um, so, so it was completely against policy and it was completely sort of ignoring everything we know about the Australian labour market. Peter, I I think that the just listening to the stories of the RoboDebt Royal Commission, um, for particularly for those who haven't been following the media in the last few years, but it reminds all of us of the times where our work was insecure and where our incomes have been variable. Um, and so I'm so, sure so many people listening uh, appreciate what you were just saying about the, the high incidence of casualised work. I want to come to the report of the Royal Commission. Uh, Commissioner Catherine Holmes, of course, handed down the report of the Royal Commission on the 7th of July this year. It gave us a detailed report with some extremely powerful findings and recommendations. I wonder if you could give us an overview of your reaction to the report and to the recommendations. Which ones of these recommendations do you think are most likely to be significant? Well, I think one of the fundamental things which I, I didn't expect but I was um, very interested in is actually in the preface to the report. Um, so it's not quite a recommendation. Well, it is a recommendation, but it doesn't come in the recommendations. Some, for those of you who have access to the, 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 the full report, it's on page nine of the, um, of the report. And um, there, she says, so this is in the preface, it's not a recommendation as such. Um, and she, talking about the recommendations, she writes, um, uh, but as to how effective any recommended change can be, I want to make two points. First, whether a public service can be developed with sufficient robustness to ensure that something of the like of the robo-debt scheme could not occur again will depend on the will of the government of the day because culture is set from the top down. Now, I'll, I'll read this out because I think it's really important. Um, second, politicians need to change in need need to lead a change in social attitudes to people receiving welfare payments. The evidence before the commission was that fraud in the welfare system was minuscule, but that is not the impression one would get from what ministers responsible for social security payments have said over the years. Anti welfare rhetoric is easy populism, useful for campaign purpose purposes. It is not recent, nor is it confined to one side of politics, as some of the quoted material in this report demonstrates. It may be that the evidence in this Royal Commission has gone some way to changing public perceptions, but largely these attitudes are set by politicians who need to abandon for good, in every sense, the narrative of taxpayer versus welfare recipient. So I, I find that really powerful because it's about, it's, um, 
it's about politicians need to lead a completely different discussion of the social security system and its role in people's lives. Um, and um, so, we, so we need we need a sort of fundamental attitudinal change, uh, particularly amongst politicians, because they're the people who um, um, ultimately get a lot of say about the social security system. And then I think the specific recommendations that the report make across a really wide range of areas, um, uh, they're, 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 they're more practical. But if we don't have that change in fundamental attitudes, um, uh, we risk having something like RoboDebt again in the future, which is what I think the Commissioner is saying we absolutely need to avoid this. Peter, thank you so much for those reflections. It really is a report that charges us to think not just about the administrative duties but the moral responsibility of government. We need to take a really short break at this point in time and listeners will be back in just a moment. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Listeners, welcome back. We're here with Professor Peter Whiteford. And before the break, we were talking about the social security system um, in Australia, um, about the, the nature of casualised work in Australia, and also about robo-debt and, and some of the findings of the Royal Commission. Um, Peter, I, I do want to ask you about the future of social policy and particularly social security in Australia um, and how we might be able to begin to reimagine that in the wake of robo-debt. But first, I did want to, to get your reflections on the first recommendation of the Royal Commission. And I think this picks up on the point that you were making before the break um, about the need for an attitudinal shift. And that first recommendation of the Royal Commission was that it is necessary to design policies and processes with emphasis on the people who they are meant to serve. And one of the most confronting aspects of the evidence provided to the Royal Commission was the extent to which people who needed support were vilified and dehumanised and treated incredibly badly. You talked before the break about the importance of leadership um, and political leadership in shifting those attitudes and preventing those kinds of policies being introduced again. But I wonder if, if you could just say a little bit more on, on what else you think is needed to move towards a social security system that genuinely respects recipients of benefits and recognises that benefits are an entitlement? I mean, it, I, yeah, if there was an easy answer to that question, um, somebody else may have come up with it, uh, the answer. I, I think 
the 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 there's, there's a range of complicated issues. Um, so the social security system is actually, um, dis- yeah, as I said earlier on, there's, there's a tendency um, uh, to um, see people receiving social security payments, particularly working age people, not 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 so much um, uh, age pensioners, um, as um, you know, divided into them and us and them, well, us sort of the virtuous taxpayers that the Royal Commissioner referred to and that um, uh, and that uh, Social Security recipients are sort of, um, well, to use a phrase um, uh, that was pop- used a little bit before, RoboDebt, um, they're leaners, right? Um, and us taxpayers are the lifters. And that's, um, that completely misunderstands the nature of the modern economy. Um, I was just um, just hang on a second. I was just also going to look at um, uh, so um, the um, the ABS does um, of course in their labour force survey look at labour market flows, and I think the thing to remember about people's lives is um, and the statistics about people's lives is that in a sense. Everything is a result of movement and change. Um, we tend to think of um, so we tend to think of social security recipients as if they're on payments for um, forever and then they're, they're not contributing. Um, but say, for example, in May 2023, um, uh, the number of people in who were employed in Australia went up by a bit under forty thousand. But that forty thousand was the result of um, um, a more than 500,000 people entering employment. So so in April, they didn't have a job, but in May, they did. So 500,000 in a month, um, while around close to 400,000 people left employment. So um, now you you enter employment um, both from being outside the labour force um, or, or being unemployed or, or leaving school when perhaps you're outside of the labour force. And um, so... So the idea that um, unemployment is something that doesn't, that, you know, um, is a sort of a long-term phenomenon for lots of people is completely wrong. And, of course, that's also the case, um, you know, uh, people become ill um, literally every day of the week um, and uh, they or their families, um, you know, some of them have to uh, give up work for a while, you know, Family members have to take time off work to care for them. Um, so, you know, sort of um, health health problems faced by people are incredibly common. Um, and so, so these there are these big flows into um, health conditions, into different statuses in the labour market, and also into you know what's happening to your family relationship and you know break up of family relationships, and all of those things. Um, generate um, for many people the need to use social security payments. Um, so uh, there's also, of course, uh, the University of Melbourne has the HILDA survey, the Household Income and Labour Dynamics in Australia survey. Um, over um, over the first ten or so years of that survey, um, something like um, and these are just working age households receiving income support payments. They're not family payments and not age pensions. Something like 70% of households included somebody who received a social security payment. 
So 70%, you know, that's, that's the majority of the population. Um, and uh, the longer the survey goes on, that number keeps rising. Um, and so, uh, yeah, that's, um, that's why other countries have social insurance systems. And what we have is a system that also provides insurance. It's just it does it on different principles. So understanding that, um, uh, you know, you can lose your job, you or someone in your family can become ill, um, uh, you can lose a partner either through illness or death or through a relationship breakdown. These things um, lead people to need the social security system. So the social security system is sort of a, in a sense, um, a fundamental bedrock of modern societies like Australia. And um, sorry, that's a rather long and convoluted way of answering your question. Um, But but I think that's the thing we need to understand is that – uh, what we need is a system which helps us when we need it. Um, to me, the fundamental message of any longitudinal analysis statistics is that, um, unfortunately, every every bad thing is much more common than we think. Um, but the other message is actually moderately optimistic, which is um, it's not in, as intensive as we think. Um, so everything is more common, but it doesn't necessarily last as long as we think. So, so for example, while um, 70% of working age households contained somebody in a 10-year period who um, received a, an income support payment of the sort that got caught up in RoboDebt, um, something like 0.8 of a percent of the households stay on benefits for 10 years, um, you know, if you this is working age benefits. So this idea of um, the people who are, you know, sort of in a sense dependent upon the charity of others, um, it's true for a tiny minority of people who have lots of long-term problems, right, of various sorts. Um, But it's something that uh, potentially affects just about everybody um, or um, well, the vast majority of the population. You're very lucky if you don't have to call on Social Security sometime in your working life. So, Peter, I think you've just superbly explained how Social Security is that essential foundation on which a robust society can be built. And it also, also, of course, needs to be designed to accommodate the messiness of humanity, the lives that we lead, the actual messiness of the way in which human existence is created. One of the issues that's emerged from RoboDebt is the lack of the appeals process that's been available to people who've been ill-treated through that social security system. And, of course, that appeal and accountability is tremendously important. The Royal Commission report includes recommendations about the role of the Administrative Appeals Tribunal and the role of the Commonwealth Ombudsman. There's been some critique of the ways in which the role of the AAT has been diminished over the past decade, interesting politics perhaps at the time. And going forward, I wonder what it is you think we need to see genuine accountability and to ensure that there are processes of appeal available to people who engage with the social security system. Well, I mean, there are there are a couple of different things that have happened with the AAT, as you, as I'm sure you know. One of which is the question of who gets appointed to the AAT, um, and uh, there's been some controversy about that. And I think that um, uh, the uh, the government's reconstituting it, so um, so that um, hopefully will address that. Uh, I mean, what happened in RoboDebt was that um, 
people did appeal to the AAT. Um, now, if you have an appeal um, uh, that goes to the first level, um, the government doesn't have to publish the results of the appeal. So what happened during RoboDebt was that um, the, some of the members of the Administrative Appeals Tribunal, well, not all of them, um, overturned um, uh, the, um, the, you know, the, the, the RoboDebts. They said, this is not this is not um, uh, this is not a valid way of calculating debts for a number of reasons. Uh, but um, the the if the government had appealed those decisions, uh, i.e., said we, we disagree, um, then the results of the next level of um, appeal would have been made public. So. Yeah, unfortunately, so it was a government um, or administrative decision not to appeal those um, uh, those adverse judgments in the administrative appeals tribunal. That was the issue. So, so in not all of the cases, but in many of them, um, the AAT you know reached the right decision, right? But it was just that um, nobody knew about it. Um, so it, yeah, um, I think it's pretty clear from a number of other things that uh, you know. Within, um, there was a pattern of deception, right? Um, they didn't appeal these things because um, they didn't want uh, the results to be made public. And, um, you know, one of the most prominent uh, members of the AAT was Professor Terry Carney, an emeritus professor of law from Sydney University, um, who, while he was a member of the AAT, couldn't talk, talk about these things. Um, but he was not reappointed to the Administrative Appeals Tribunal, and that, of course, gave him the opportunity to talk about it. Um, and he described it as, um, you know, a sort of kindergarten law because it was so straightforwardly obvious that this had been wrong. So, so it's not it, one level. It's not the failure of the AAT. It was it was this deception by the administration about. Um, about the decisions. Now, I think that, um, you know, sort of um, publishing decisions, these, these initial decisions um, would have solved that problem. So it's a, it, it's a, it's, um, and then there's, as I said, there's the broader question of what's the, um, who gets appointed? Um, because I think there's been some analysis, um, um, uh, might be, I don't, might be the Grattan Institute, but um, might be one of the other um, think tanks in this area about um, how, particularly on, say, for example, um, uh, refugee and migration decisions, there are vast differences between um, decisions depending on which member of the tribunal made the judgment. So there's a lack of consistency within um, – there was a lack of consistency within the tribunal. Uh, I must confess that I, I actually read the um, most of them. There's an appendix um, in the in the Royal Commission report, um, uh, and I think Professor Carney made an analysis of it as well uh, about the um, uh, the the AAT appeals. I mean, there are a couple of things. Um, I mean, quite a number of the decisions were. Essentially, I mean, it's quite interesting. Um, some were very clear, saying, "No, you can't do this because this is not what the Social Security Act allows you to do." Um, on a couple of counts, 
Um, some of them, uh, when presented with the um, – there was a sort of – quite a lot of cases where they sort of threw up their hands in the air and said, um, on the evidence available to us, we have no idea whether this is an accurate um, uh, uh, calculation of a debt. So they required Sendling to go back and recalculate the debt. But they could just couldn't tell because there was so little information about the case, um, either provided by the person or provided by um, the administration, um, that it was impossible to tell whether the, you know, the, the debt was accurately calculated. Um, I mean, there's, there's also um, uh, there, there are quite – getting back to that point about um, the messiness of people's lives, uh, I mean, this was an extreme case. And the, but the, these are only you know, a few hundred – Appeals to the Administrative Appeals Tribunal, not not everything that happened to all the people affected by robo debt. Um, there was a one of the appeals was from a person who, in the period of five years, had forty three different employers, um, and there were a number of cases where, um, in a single year, people had um, eleven or twelve different employers. So so there's a um, there's a segment of the labour market that interacts with the social security system where um, people have very precarious um, jobs, you know, um, um, and that, I mean, that's a, that's a broader issue about the state of the labour market. It's just that RoboDebt sort of brought it out to um, uh, focus on it in a, in a way that, um, uh, you know, makes it much more salient than it may have been to... Um, Many people. Peter, I, I think that that description that you, you've just given us around the complexity of the work of, of the, the AAT and the many layers around it, this is so valuable in helping us to understand um, just how incredibly complicated this scheme became. Um, and the way in which people become lost within it. Um, certainly listening to, to Terry Carney talk about his experiences is incredibly powerful um, and the challenges that people of great integrity at times face when the processes of transparency and accountability are there, but those principles are not being upheld by all players in the game, if you like. Yeah. I mean, I think I should emphasise that, um, you know, quite apart from the complexity of people's lives, um, you know, as I said, Professor Carney described this as sort of like kindergarten law. Now, um, not that I was particularly prescient, but in early 2017, I wrote a piece for the conversation. Um, it was called something like Memo to Centling People's Lives Have Changed. Um, and it was, I mean, the other thing, of course, is that what Centrelink were actually doing um, they disguised. They never really described it accurately, so it was very hard to work out what they were actually doing. And I can remember, um, yeah, sort of the descriptions of it as if they were averaging people's incomes over the entire year. And I can distinctly remember thinking at the time, well, they can't possibly have done that right because, um, you know, and I said, well, take the example of a student. Uh, person receiving student payments. The financial year is, you know, the 1st of July to the 30th of June. The student year is not the 1st of July to the 30th of June. Um, you know, it's sort of February to November. And so that people would have um, uh, both substantial earnings during the holidays, but also not beyond payments for the whole of any 
of the beginning financial year or the end financial year. So I thought, well, they can't be doing that because it's so obviously wrong, right? Um, well, that's what they were doing. Um, and the Amato case, which is the case in the federal court in 2019, that where the government had to admit, no, this is all unlawful. Um, she had been uh, a student on Oz study, and um, she said that um, um, she realised that they had included earnings she received before she ever received a payment. So, you know, in the first half of, um, um, uh, you know, in the, you know, sort of, she didn't start till you know, halfway through the financial year, or a little bit more than halfway through the financial year. So, so. I mean, that is so obviously wrong. You know, that is not what the system does, right? Um, so it's, um, it's, it's both that the system is very complicated and people's lives are very complicated, but they, what they did was just simply completely wrong. Um, and uh, I think nobody who, well, you would hope nobody who had any involvement in... Um, um, the social security system would think that that was correct, but somehow some people did. Peter, it's quite shocking when we reflect on what has happened. Um, and that account that you give, I think, just reminds us again, if we need reminding at this point in time, of how important it is for us to move on from this experience of robo-debt to think very deeply about how we we frame social policy, about how we think about social security and how we learn from those mistakes and those wrongs that have been made. And Peter, we're in the midst of a, of a series of episodes on the pod that are about reimagining social policy. And we're seeing some of that reimagining playing out as the government and particularly the treasurer move us towards a wellbeing approach. And other countries, including our neighbour, New Zealand, have already moved in that direction. I'd love to hear your thoughts as, as we begin to wind up this conversation on how a wellbeing approach might help us to reimagine social policy and also help us to reimagine our social security system and how that might help us to avoid the wrongs that have been committed through robo-debt. The... Um well, I think that um, the wellbeing framework uh, is potentially very useful because of its focus on, um, uh, well, on you know a broader approach to um, uh, thinking about social and economic outcomes. Now, uh, I mean, the, the full components or construction of the wellbeing framework are obviously still being finalised, but um, there are obvious elements of it um, uh, that could potentially be very valuable. I mean. A, Quite apart from, I mean, robo debt is at one level sort of, sort of the culmination um, of other things as well. So, um, I mean, essentially, uh, up until um, uh, the end, the last bit of the Morrison government and um, uh, and the most recent budget, um, social security payments for the unemployed have not been increased much beyond. Uh, the rate of inflation since um, since the early 1990s. Um, in that time, household incomes in real terms have risen very substantially, particularly in the early 2000s. Um, so, um, so people receiving working age payments, there's been this sort of drift in policy that um, um, you know if you if you don't really substantially increase what well, if you don't increase payments in real terms, 
very significantly for 25 years while household incomes are growing and, um, and people's housing costs are increasing quite significantly. Um, you, know, you sort of you have people on benefits drifting away from the rest of the population. So that that so quite so robo debt came after that period of um, essentially reduced relative generosity to um, to working age people. There's also um, yeah there's uh, we've put the requirements for complying with um, looking for work um, have become much more. Um, uh, much harder. We've also um, had um, what I think of as a sort of invisible targeting that um, uh, means that um, a much higher proportion of the Australian population are ineligible for payments um, and don't ever receive uh, an unemployment payment when they become unemployed. So just prior to COVID, um, uh, some work I'd done with uh, Bruce Bradbury at the University of New South Wales suggests that um, only about 40% of the ABS unemployed were receiving an income support payment during their unemployment. Now, the reason for that is that um, uh, we've got a lot of temporary migrants um, before COVID and resuming who, are, who have no access to the social security system. Um, that includes people, lots of people born in New Zealand who can move here but not get social security. Um, that's been changed by the government. Um, there's also um, temporary foreign workers, um, uh, and we've also, um, you know, sort of. It, it used to be that um, uh, we've got a liquid asset test waiting period that basically you have to run down your savings if you've got if you've got a reasonable amount of savings in order to um, in order to um, receive payments. You have to wait up to 13 weeks before you receive payments. So so we've been targeting away from people and the system covers far fewer people than it did in the past. So the coverage has shrunk, the um, compliance activities have become much more intense, and the payment levels in real terms until recently didn't increase very substantially. And then robo-debt. So it's sort of, um, you know, it's not a pretty picture, basically. Uh, and it's, um, I mean, I think, repairing all of those things uh, is going to take quite a lot of time um, because it's also going to take yeah, um, potentially quite a lot of money. Um, I think, and so we need, I mean, one of the important things about the wellbeing framework is to try to join up these different areas. Um, I, I mean, the other thing is that um, uh, in another capacity, I'm on I'm a member of the Economic Inclusion Interim Economic Inclusion Advisory Committee, who um, recommended to the government that they have a much more substantial increase in unemployment payments than they and other payments than they actually introduced. Um, one of the most striking things in our focus groups for that committee was um, the health problems and the problems people have in accessing both Medicare um, and also particularly people with episodic mental health problems, um, how difficult it is to get um, uh, doctors who will be able to help them. Um, so, and also, you know, people at the other end of the age spectrum who said um, that, that was particularly young people with episodic mental health problems uh, and people at the other end of the age spectrum who said that with the level of um, job seeker payment they were receiving, um, 
they had to decide which of their prescriptions they could fill this fortnight. Now, I, I mention these because, in fact, of course, uh, in the budget, the government has addressed some of those things. And so it's not in the social security system. It's in the healthcare system. It's in um, allowing New Zealanders um, who've been here uh, sufficient time to actually apply for citizenship. Um, those things are also going to have um, potentially a large impact improving well-being for, for many people. Um, so I think that um, we need to take a very wide framework of both the social security system, but the social security system within the sort of um, framework of supportive services um, affecting, you know, the cost of living and, and as I said, particularly healthcare costs. So, um, so I'm moderately positive, um, but I think that um, there's a lot of detailed work to be done and it's a work for quite a number of years, really. Peter Whiteford, what an extraordinary place for us to leave today's conversation, weaving together the threads of an interdisciplinary or breaking down the siloed approach uh, to trying to address some of these crucial challenges in Australia's policy time. Thank you so much for your wise insights into the importance of social security today and your reflections on the challenge that is robo-debt. I know we will continue to learn from this and come back to much of what we've discussed today. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks very much. It's been my pleasure. Anna Greta, there are a few people that I know, a few people in Australia, I think, that know more about the social security system than Peter Whiteford. So it is always incredible to hear his detailed analysis of, of what's happening and, and what we need to change. And he talked about political leadership and the importance of, of what happens now. I was at the Sambal Oration um, very recently. That's a, an annual oration that the Brotherhood of St. Lawrence runs. And um, the treasurer, Dr. Jim Chalmers, was speaking at that oration this year. And his words were, never again will this happen. Now, of course, one government can never guarantee what will happen into the future. But I think it was very clear um, to the audience that he was determined to make changes that will ensure that the abuses of robo-debt cannot happen again. And I think that kind of leadership is so incredibly important. And I think this is an opportunity for all sides of parliament to come together um, and to say things were wrong, as Peter said, this was wrong. Um, and to collectively say, this must never happen again. And I think what a wonderful thing if instead of trying to make a political game out of the recommendations of the Royal Commission and the report that came down, the Leader of the Opposition and all members of our Parliament could say, this was wrong and we will do better and we will ensure it never happens again. Um, and the other, that Peter's optimism around well-being, I think, is is also so important. And undergrad, I'm sure you will have something to say on this. But that point he made about our social security system being based on people needing to run down their assets in order to get benefits, the intensification of compliance, demonstrate that our system's no longer fit for purpose. We shouldn't force people to hit rock bottom in order to receive help, because in doing that, 
they can't maintain their well-being. They can't build a future for themselves and their families. So we've got a system that we need to reform. As Peter said, it's going to take a long time, but we've got an opportunity to do it. And I think we've got to grasp that opportunity. Absolutely. The What really strikes me is these, the conversation that's uh, emerging around empathy and the role of kindness uh, and the way in which we can care for each other uh, and the role that government has to play in caring. And I think at the heart of, of for me, of some of this discussion is that question of um, what is administratively accurate. And there are obviously times where the legislation and the legal advice was clear uh, that robo-debt should not have been taking place. But that the moral questions that are emerging of why why the humanity was missing, why empathy was not part of the administrative approach, these are really profound questions. It was extraordinary listening to Peter today, and it gets me thinking deeply about what the role of social security is in Australia. He has described for us how this is an essential foundation for our society and that, that how robust that foundation is. If you think about it as a, as a, uh, a floor on which we stand or if it's a, a, a surface on, that you might be able to fall onto, that how robust, how thick and how resilient that foundation is, that is defined by our social values as a community and it's implemented by our politicians. So these are things over which we have choice, like choosing whether we have children that live in poverty, as you so importantly described to us last week, uh, and the way in which we care for people and place. These are choices. So at the core of this is how we care for each other and how we value that care. Anna Greta, that, that is so true. And as you're talking, I'm thinking of the comments made by Colleen Taylor, who was one of the incredibly courageous whistleblowers in this whole saga. And I remember hearing her say, this should have been stopped because it was illegal, but it should have been stopped because it was cruel, because it was immoral, because it was wrong. And so I think you're right. You know, we need we need processes, we need guidelines, but we need our principles. And at the heart of those principles, we need compassion and we need care. Listeners, this podcast is produced by ANU's Crawford School of Public Policy, and we will leave a link to the publications and sources that we've mentioned in um, the Crawford LinkedIn account. So please do go and have a look at what we're saying on LinkedIn. If you like this episode, please don't forget to subscribe so you can keep up to date with future episodes. And if you're feeling generous, you can leave us a review. That really is the best way for other people to find out about the podcast and to be able to engage in these really important conversations that we're having. Because we do love hearing from our audience. So please reach out to us on Twitter at ANU Crawford or at the Crawford School of Public Policy LinkedIn page. And with that, that's all we have time for today. So from me, Anna Greta Hunter, see you next week. And from me, Sharon Bessel, it's bye-bye for now. <laughs>